1: Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. I got to tell you, have you all been following the reckoning that is happening in the big tech companies where people are taking on the system and questioning how things are done? And I'm thinking in particular about Francis Hagen, who is the whistleblower at Facebook, who went up to Capitol Hill to discuss how that company is harming both its users and society. And so I think it's important for entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial thinkers to think about, you know, what am I doing here? Am I doing something good for the world? Am I causing harm? I mean, a lot of these companies didn't start off in the business of damaging the societies in which they operate, but they end up in this bad place. And so in honor of the people who are speaking up, against these huge powers, and in a service to all of us who want to come up with better ideas that actually do good in the world, we're gonna talk about that today. The topic is what is going wrong in tech and how can we fix it? And we need entrepreneurial thinking to do just that. And my two guests today are at the forefront of this conversation. They are Jeremy Weinstein and Robert Reich, who are the authors, together with Mehran Sahani, of System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How Can We Reboot. And the three of them are professors at Stanford. Very impressive guys. And so let me just tell you about Rob and Jeremy. Rob Reich is a philosopher, the director of Stanford University's Center for Ethics and Society. He's co-director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society and associate director of its new Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) A former sixth grade teacher, he has won multiple teaching awards at Stanford and he helped to create the global movement Giving Tuesdays and serves as the chair of its board. That is pretty extraordinary. And my other guest, of course, is Jeremy M Weinstein, who is a political scientist, and he went to Washington with President Obama in 2009 and then served as the chief of staff for the US ambassador to the United Nations. That was Samantha Power. She brought Jeremy to New York and he served later as her deputy. He then returned to Stanford in 2015 as a professor of political science where he now leads Stanford Impact Labs, a major university initiative that partners research teams with leaders in the public, private, and social sectors to tackle important social problems. These guys are impressive. I mean, the brain power in this conversation is crazy. They are both really smart and they have a lot to say and you're gonna learn a lot. So here's what you're gonna learn. First of all, we're gonna talk about why so many entrepreneurs, including the students that they're teaching at Stanford, are creating companies that don't solve actual problems. They're just like stupid you know, companies that don't really do anything all that important for the world. And I think we got to expect a little bit more of ourselves. We also talk about the things that are keeping them up at night and how technology is shaping the world in some pretty frightening ways. We're going to talk about the dangers of over-optimization, a little phobo in there for you. And we're going to talk about why, despite all of the stuff, the negative stuff, why we should be optimistic looking forward and how we can address these issues, the ones that we're talking about, how we can make a change that will actually create Tons of opportunities going forward. So it's a fascinating conversation, a little wonky. I'm going to say this is not your normal FOMO sapiens. We're getting into some policy issues, but I know you guys, number one, can handle it and number two, are going to enjoy it. Now, (laughs) let's switch it up. My small ask, and this is super naughty, so forgive me. I'm just telling you how proud I am of the Facebook whistleblower, but I'm going to ask you to follow me on Instagram. Come meet me in the metaverse because even though There are some issues there. I still love Instagram, and I do believe it can be a force for good if it's used in the right way. So join me there. For the simple reason that it's an easy way for us to chat, message me. I want to talk to you. Find me at Patrick J. McGinnis. All right. And now on to the interview. As you know, I like to start with the same question. And I start with that same question today, but more focused on this particular book and this project. So I started up by asking Jeremy this question. What is a formative decision you had to make to get to where you are today?
0: I'm going to answer the question through the lens of this project. Like, what's the most important decision that got me to the point of co-authoring a book on tech and tech policy, which basically would not be expected at all on the basis of anything that you would see in my CV or background, right? I'm a social scientist. I worked on issues of poverty and political violence in developing countries for most of my career. I was a foreign policy wonk, serving at the White House uh, and at the State Department in the Obama administration. But I was struck during my time in government about the profound disconnect between those who were governing a society being transformed by technology and those who actually understand technology. And I experienced that when we were grappling with issues of encryption around the iPhone thinking about the national security consequences of encryption, or thinking about the kind of frontiers of cyber warfare, you know, when the interview came out and there was a cyber attack on Sony uh, and its offices in the United States. And I just realized that I knew so little about what was happening in the tech space, even though here I was, someone who taught at Stanford University, which was the seedbed of Silicon Valley. So the most important decision that I made is in 2015, when I came back from the Obama administration to Stanford, I said, I've got to walk myself across campus to the engineering quad, where most of our students are now studying, where the pathway is to some of the most powerful positions that will shape the 21st century. And I need to start educating myself about these frontiers And teaching myself and working with others to think about how we engage on the intersections between what I know, which is questions of public policy, the role of institutions, thinking about social science and social consequences and how they're measured. And I need to bring that to the table. But I need to overcome the kind of passivity that I've personally had vis-a-vis technology. Accepting technology as something that's just happening elsewhere. And it happens to me. And I don't have any role in shaping it.
1: As you as you were saying that, I was thinking about you, know, you watch these hearings on Capitol Hill where you have our leaders are all really old, right? Like, <laughs> this is like no term limits. So they're all you have these people like 89 years old who probably, you know, don't interact with technology. And they're trying to come up with policies that are going to govern this industry that is going to deeply affect our world. So it is it's super important. Now, I, I want to turn to you, Rob, because. Uh, the, you know, your book, Sister Mara, is really a diagnosis and a set of recommendations about how we can harness technology, keep it from going in the wrong direction and have it go in the right direction. And you start out with this really interesting kind of dichotomy from Stanford University, which is where all these tech companies are getting started. And you talk about these two students, one is named Joshua Browder and the other is called Aaron Swartz. And they're sort of like for you, a way of thinking about what is going wrong in the tech world. So I'd love it if you just kind of give us that framework because I think people find it really interesting.
2: Great, well, so Joshua Browder is the, the recent Stanford um, grad, initially a dropout, although I think he's got, eventually gotten his degree, who like many, many, many other students who come through Stanford and now populate Silicon Valley, you know, felt personally a pain point in his life and then tried to get a technical solution to it. And that pain point was that as a high school student, he lived in London and he drove himself to high school and he got a lot of parking tickets. And he tried to find a way to solve that problem through technology. He created a kind of automated system where you could get the optimal grievance procedure in your locality for whatever parking ticket you got. And then he rolled this out as a company when he was an undergrad and got venture capital funding and then went went off and running optimizing for you know a, a very local and kind of um, um, understandable but in our view lamentable um, um, problem to solve because it doesn't recognize the other reasons we have parking tickets a source of municipal revenue a way to ensure that you can back out of your driveway and someone hasn't parked in front of it disabled people with li- allocated spots etc cetera, etc cetera. and we tell the story of his creation of the company you know, solving the problem of a 19-year-old getting venture capital funding, and now the company called Do Not Pay wants to get rid of all lawyers by creating um, automated systems for legal processes. Um, the other person you mentioned, Aaron Swartz, um, at least a generation earlier, um, much more widely known in his time um, as uh, someone who, who very deliberately chose to get technical skills. He was an early coding genius, a kind of boy wonder already in his teenage years, um, created some of the RSS protocols that are now widely used on the web. Uh, But he wanted to acquire those skills for a civic purpose. He he saw these technical skills as unlocking civic potential. And he wanted um, to direct his talent in a way that didn't just solve a very self-interested problem, but rather um, find a way to devote and direct his attention and time to broader social problems. Um, Technology was inherently, from his point of view, political. And we've kind of lost sight of that as a pathway for a Stanford student these days. Um, The pantheon of heroes they they learn about and come into college knowing about are the dropout founders who have created these big tech companies. And the earlier hacker ethos, in which there's open source um, standards and aspirations for for civic civic impact, that's now a kind of distant memory or completely forgotten. And it's a kind of metaphor about how we've gone down a you know a, a bad alley um, in in technology these days, especially at our home our, our home in, you know base at Stanford University.
1: Jeremy, when you think about this this dichotomy right and i I think about it like i look on my phone i have all these apps for 50 minute grocery delivery and they all give me 30 bucks to spend so i just use the 30 bucks and then i just erase it because these are not real problems being solved but like you know you've been in the government seat you're now back at the stanford seat like what should what should be the role of technology be in our society like what are the problems that it should be solving fomo quick math the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: FOMO. So it's a great question. And I want to be clear that in in the book and and more generally in our teaching, we are not anti-technology. Technology is something that provides an extraordinary array of benefits and transformations that not only drives economic growth, but also improves people's lives. Think about access to information and what's been enabled by the internet or the social media platforms that have given voice to people who previously could not access sort of mechanisms that would enable them to share their views because the set of mechanisms that exist were controlled by a set of gatekeepers and a very small number. Um, But I think what's at the core of the dilemma, Patrick, is that when technologies are built, they encode a set of values and they encode the values of those who build and design technologies. And often those who build and design technologies uh, come from a particular social class, a particular background. Those are the people who get access to venture capital. And when we think about the fact of technology not being neutral, but actually encoding values, it challenges us to ask two questions. Number one are the values that are being encoded, that is, what is the problem that technology is being designed for? Is it pursuing an end that we think is worthwhile and important? And that's where the delivery apps question you know, sort of comes up. Um, and then the second is, is the value that's being encoded in the technology intention in important ways with other things that we value? So let me just give the quick example of the incredible creation of something like WhatsApp or Signal that puts its thumb on the scale for privacy. There's nothing more important than privacy, end-to-end encrypted communication. It's immediately clear that that value is in tension with other things that we might care about. Say, our ability to protect children from child pornography that can be trafficked over end-to-end encrypted technologies or our ability to protect our communities uh, from violent attacks or terrorist attacks. And if you simply rely on technologists to referee those value trade-offs, especially when they're doing so in the private sector with a profit motive. You lose all sight of the public interest and the collective deliberation that we need to referee these value trade-offs. And so it's not like, you know, what could technology be used for that's good and we should come up with a list now. It's to recognize that every technology is going to embed in it a set of value trade-offs and The obligation on all of us is to make those trade-offs explicit and to think about the appropriate arena for decision-making when what a technology generates in the world has social harms that affect stakeholders that go well beyond the users of that technology
1: that's a really good way of putting it I as you were talking I was just thinking about like imagine that all water was private in America right and that you had all these incentives and so some companies said well you know what we're gonna do we're just put sugar in it because people like sugar and they'll pay more because it tastes good and then all of a sudden you know it's sort of like this very essential part of our lives that we need to use every day that does really good things. And that is, you know, important to us. There's these private sector incentives that mess with everything. So that it's, it's a really good way of thinking about it. Now, Rob, um, so there's a positive aspects, but obviously in the last couple of years and last couple of months, like the, I love that we're having this conversation for the listeners. We were supposed to do this a little while earlier and we had all these tech difficulties. So I, the tech world didn't want us to record this. But anyway, ever since we started talking and getting to know each other, the the stories, the drum beats of stories, Francis Hagen, the the Facebook stuff, you know, misinformation, it's just coming out every day, more and more information about how tech is being used to do very naughty things around the world. So, you know, there's way too many things to talk about, but I'd love, Rob, if you could just kind of talk about the things that kind of, I guess, keep you up at night in terms of how technology is shaping the world.
2: Sure. Yeah, well, what you point to is something I think is essential to begin with, which is that there's this long-standing dynamic where... Um, some type of scientific discovery or technological innovation gets brought into the marketplace with private investment and then companies experiment with these frontier technologies. The, the, the service sort of matures. It's brought to scale to millions or billions of users. And the, the tendency within the marketplace is for then a few major players to solidify their positions. And that's all the more so with these tech companies because of network effects um, that, that you know, make the, the major player ever more valuable. Um, this has happened before with the emerging technologies. And part of our, our story in the book is about what we call a race between disruption and democracy. So you know public, public institutions and public policy is always trying to catch up to the most recent technological innovations and, that are brought to scale in the marketplace. So the things today um, that seem obvious, that you've already mentioned some of them, Patrick, like misinformation and disinformation, privacy abuses, automation in the workplace that displaces human labor or transforms the experience of working in, 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 in a company, um, things about algorithmic um, fairness or algorithmic biases, and, and of course, AI and facial recognition and drone warfare, We could keep going. In many respects though, the kind of policy conversations that are happening are reactive to the whole set of these now pretty routine technologies that are available. And the the bigger aspiration that we point to in, in our teaching and in the book is to say, how can we create a more nimble and flexible public institutional design that can be adaptive to frontier technologies rather than always reactive to the things that have happened. and We have a whole bunch of suggestions in the book about this, but we think this is the urgent place for development. We we should take it as a given that a democratic government will not be as innovative and flexible uh, in technological innovation and discovery on its own. The marketplace has an important role to play. Just as Jeremy said, we're not anti-technology, neither are we anti-market. We're pro-market, but where the market plays its role and public institutions also play their role. So, you know, the final thing I'll just add here is it's a well-known observation these days that the kind of political orientation of Silicon Valley leaders is libertarian or techno-libertarian. Um, And when you combine the kind of optimizing mindset of the engineer and the techno-libertarian mindset of the founder, you're optimizing for libertarianism, which is to say you're optimizing for the minimal role of the government. That is an unhealthy and toxic brew. FOMO FOMO
1: it is true what you say. I'm thinking about Elon Musk type of people that have been, there are heroes and you know every kid wants to be Elon Musk. And and if you let Elon Musk run all the companies, I mean, we'll, we'll I don't know what the world's going to look like, but I can tell you what, it's going to hurt. And before we go to solutions though, because I, I do want to get into those, I just want to ask Jeremy. So Jeremy, well, let's play that out, right? So like, let's assume that there's a, you guys over at Stanford, I'm not going to blame you, but you ha- I'm sure you have lots of little Elons running around and they just take over and they run stuff and they're not there's no limits put on what they do like what does the world look like in 10 20 years like what's your kind of nightmare scenario
0: well in some sense i think we've got a preview of that right now right so part of the story of the book is to suggest that the last 25 years the reality that we confront these social harms that rob is describing are the result of the deliberate absence of government oversight and regulation from the tech sector in contrast to most other sectors, that a regulatory oasis has been crafted around the tech companies that gives tech companies free reign over our personal data, even though access to educational and health data is highly regulated and constrained, right? That allows for mergers and acquisitions and consolidation that reflect not only network effects, but potentially you know, the illegal use of the power that's being accumulated to snuff out competitors, right? And we can go on and on. You know, the reality is we've set ourselves up in a position where we blindly trusted the engineers to look out not only for their own corporate interests but also for our social interests. And the consequences are what we experience every day, right? So we've got what we're experiencing today, misinformation and disinformation that's transforming the way that elections happen. We're in the midst of a once in a century global pandemic where vaccine hesitancy is driven by YouTube recommendation algorithms and false information passed online, right? And and if you wanna look 10, 15 years in the future and you think about what if we have unfettered automation of decision-making around all sorts of things that happen in our lives? Not only the things that we know that happen now, like how we get credit, access to credit in in a bank loan, but say most hiring decisions are made on the basis of automated decision-making tools, or the allocation of really essential services like access to healthcare or treatment. We already have a preview of the bias and discrimination and lack of due process and concerns about fairness, but in the absence of guardrails, we're gonna be experiencing that in every domain in our life. If we think about the preview that we have of our future in the gig worker economy, the, the the lack of recognition of what it means to be a worker and to have a set of protections associated with that, and the appeal of automation, the efficiency associated with automation, in fact, even the tax incentives to pursue automation, think down the road about the consequences for our workforce, and in particular, maybe not everyone in the workforce, but those at the lower end of the income distribution, those who have skills that are less marketable in a highly machine age that is the world that we're headed for but you don't need science fiction to envision it because we're living it we're living it right now and and so you know when people say i'm so you know what could democracy do it's going to stand in the way of innovation like let's just rely on the companies i say how's that going for you right now right are you happy with the outcomes that we see all around us gross inequality that we haven't seen in a century our democracy being threatened at its very foundations i think those outcomes are unacceptable
1: they are accept- unacceptable and it's as you were talking i'm just thinking for everybody who's listening who's maybe you know even like in a very small level just think about trying to get customer service from uber right it's all it's all an algorithm. Like there's nobody there. Nobody cares about you. Unlike when you go down to your corner store. I mean, we've all been in that place where you buy something from some new web company that has no people that do anything to help you out. And then you're stuck. And you're, that, that is the preview. Imagine that was your healthcare, Right. So that's that's what's get That gets scary real fast now. I don't want to end on a negative note because lots of smart people like you guys are working on this problem. So, Rob, give us a preview of some of the solutions that you think can be brought to bear. And then give an example of something that you know either a country or an organization has done well in this sphere.
2: You might think from listening to this conversation that that we you know we're we're basically depressed uh, about the state of <laughs> affairs. And in certain respects, there's good reason to be but we're actually quite hopeful um, and and optimistic about what's about to happen in the United States and elsewhere with respect to the problems we've diagnosed and that we're all experiencing. It even cuts against my own training as a philosopher because we're we're trained to be skeptical about almost anything. And I begin with the following kind of old cliche, which is that people always overestimate what is likely to happen within one year and underestimate what's possible within a decade, and so I think we are entering a decade-long policy window for not only the United States but for other democratic societies to try to grapple with installing the guardrails um, to ensure that we get the extraordinary benefits from technology while also mitigating or tamping down some of the social harms that now have become obvious, and. You see this with the GDPR in the European Union or the, the rise of antitrust approaches in the United States, Lena Khan at the FTC, California um, passing privacy legislation. So we're at the beginning stages of this policy window that are, that's opening up. And if you want to look for you know, actual success stories, you can even think as we think it's important um, to, to go in this direction, proactive strategies rather than reactive strategies. So you know we point at the, at the book at Audrey Tang, the, the digital minister of Taiwan, who has tried to bring into the actual operation of democratic institutions a set of technologically mediated forms of communication for the purpose of, of coordinating and amplifying civic voice. And th- there's all kinds of interesting ways to deploy technology on behalf of democratic institutions, rather than just as ways to tamp down the social harms. And and we also think that there's an extraordinary outpouring um, of new ideas in this space. And that's part of what we want to champion on campus in our teaching. We want to get the 19-year-olds excited about this. Oh, you mean by deploying my technical skills on behalf of California, the sixth largest economy in the world, or in Washington, DC, the leverage I could have, the scale I could have um, operating at that level rather than Creating a company that optimizes for getting out of parking tickets. Um, if you want to have impact, think about deploying your skills within public agencies. That is an extraordinary leveraged opportunity for anyone with technical skills. And there's a, a bit of a blueprint at the end of the book for exactly that pathway.
1: All right, everybody, you heard it here first. Uh, a lot of opportunity, and you know you don't just have to go out there and try to come up with another 15 minute delivery service because. They're terrible. The name of the book is System Error, and uh, you can go find out more at systemerrorbook.com. Jeremy Weinstein and Rob Reich, thanks so much for being here.
0: Thank you very much, Patrick. Thanks for having us, Patrick. FOMO.